You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, amen. Uh, so at this time, any kids uh, up to second grade who are going back into the, the uh, kids' church can go. They'll be led to their classes. Uh, if you're looking for a seat, uh, I know there's some snuggled up real close up here with me. Uh, if, that just, if that doesn't freak you out too bad. Um, if you see any empty seats uh, towards the middle, then you could maybe kind of squeeze in. Roy's got a spot. Roy loves you. There you go. Don't be shy. Not Roy. I know Roy's not shy. Good Winston. All right. We're going to be in the book of Colossians. We're, uh, we're starting a new series uh, this morning, and so if you would turn to the book of Colossians, uh, you'll find it there in the New Testament. If, if the scriptures are a little new to you, uh, you should find a Bible close by too. Uh, you can use one of those. And uh, so we're Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then we get Acts, Romans, then we get these letters that begin, and you're going to flip through a few of them until you see Philippians, and then the next one is Colossians. And we're going to start right at the beginning. I will, uh, I'll read the first eight verses out loud, if you would follow along with me, and then uh, we'll ask the Lord, go to him again and ask him for some help. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We don't need a sermon. We don't need a human we don't need a time slot to squeeze our Christian walk into. We need you. Would you please send your Holy Spirit to fall on us now, to commandeer our hearts, our affections, our thoughts, to make use of us in every way through our speaking, through our hearing, through our love for you and our, our obedience. Lord, if there's any reluctance in us, please smash it now. Please break down walls that we've built in our hearts to compartmentalize the areas of our, of our lives that we've been willing to give to you and those things that we've been willing to hang on to and keep from you. Lord, please break those walls down. We know that your word is truth. Your word is power. So we ask for you to please have your way, Holy Spirit. 
move with your power to accomplish your will and your people. We ask for these things and no less than this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the book of Colossians is, uh, is unique in the same way that every book of the, the Bible is unique. Uh, and there was a particular reason that this letter was written by Paul and, and Timothy, most likely kind of dictated by Paul and written down by Timothy, his son in the faith. Um, and at this point, um, Paul is uh, in prison, uh, most likely in Rome. And around the same time, he wrote some, some other letters to the Ephesians and to Philemon and, and some other things. Uh, but there was a particular purpose that he had. He wasn't just writing general letters to all the, the believers throughout uh, the world, the known world, the places where he had traveled, preached the gospel, planted churches, and made disciples. Uh, th- these weren't just general letters. They were written for specific purposes and to teach and accomplish certain things. And as Paul is writing this letter, uh, it's important to know because we're kind of introducing the letter now, not just jumping straight into the meat of the text, but it's in the same way that Paul introduces himself and Timothy as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, it's helpful to know uh, where it is he's writing from and why he's writing these things and, and even the circumstances he finds himself in as he's writing this. So you need to know, or at least it's helpful to know, that Paul here is writing this letter in about the year 62 uh, AD. And so if you imagine the year 62, then you know that's about 30 years after the death, the resurrection of Christ. You know that's about 30 years since since the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. You know that's about 30 years since uh, a really courageous disciple named Stephen was preaching the gospel to the religious rulers of the day, had a vision of the Lord risen and, and on high at the Father's right hand, and was uh, dragged out into the street and stoned because of his faith and his witness of Jesus Christ and his power. And, and in that moment of Stephen being stoned, you had a young man, a young Pharisee, standing off to the side, holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen and giving his uh, approval to Stephen's death, and that young man was named Saul, and Saul was just beginning to be filled with fervency, with zeal against the Lord Jesus, with hatred for all those who identified with him and had faith in him, because he felt that he was purging the world of an infection that was uh, corrupting traditional faithful Jewish faith. So here you have the Apostle Paul writing a letter roughly 30 years after he had been such an opposer and a murderer and imprisoner of Christians, now writing this letter for their good and and for their healing and for their correction and to fill in their understanding of the gospel where it may have been lacking and where certainly it was lacking because of the reports that he was hearing. So here you have Paul imprisoned, writing this letter, Timothy writing it down. You can kind of get the image in your mind. And, and uh, it's, you know, it's understood that as Paul was in prison in Rome, he spent a long time there where he was kind of under house arrest, not, not in a traditional prison setting. But as he's writing Colossians, I don't, I don't know exactly what it was like for him. Uh, prison is prison. And he's writing it to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He says, grace to you and peace from God 
our Father. This is the way basically all of Paul's letters start. He wants to bless them with grace and with peace. He knows that the grace of God is necessary for their lives, for their advancement in the faith, for their continued endurance as they face so much persecution. And he knows that peace from God is the only thing that will allow us to really endure with any kind of joy. So starting at verse 3 here, he's um, beginning to address them. And first of all, he has this just overflow of thanksgiving from his heart, and he wants to let them know that he's been praying for them. So he says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Now, if you notice there, he's speaking kind of as somebody who's a little bit disconnected from them. You pick up on that? Since we've heard of your faith and of the love that you have for the saints. We've heard of these things, but we're not personally familiar with them. And the reason why that's so important to point out is that Paul never met these brothers and sisters. He had never been to Colossae. He never rolled through town preaching as he did in Ephesus or in Philippi or, or in Corinth. He would roll in, he would find a synagogue, he would begin preaching the gospel there and, and helping people understand how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And he would either have believers or he would have opposition. And depending on that, he would normally end up outside of the synagogue with a few people who were believing. And then he would reach out to the Gentiles. And before long, disciples were being made, they're being raised up and taught, and they were following Christ and churches were established. He never had that privilege when it came to Colossae. But you're going to understand here in just a minute how the church came into existence. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, someone else is telling us about your faith, about your hope, about your love, and we're encouraged to hear about it. But who is this Epaphras guy? Epaphras is a a key person if you're going to understand this letter written to the church in Colossae. If you were to turn back to Acts and read chapter 19, you would start getting some kind of, uh, some some parallel understanding here that would help you understand Epaphras and help you understand uh, the, the context of what's happening. So in Acts chapter 19, you have Paul in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a real big kind of cosmopolitan city, lots of trade going on, uh, very heavily populated as ancient cities go. And Ephesus is one of the leading cities in the, provi- the Roman province of Asia. It's modern-day Turkey. So if you could imagine Turkey on, on a map, I know as Americans we're willfully, woefully <laughs> ignorant of geography and all those things, but if you can imagine the Mediterranean Sea and, and Turkey just there on the northeastern edge of the Mediterranean, that's where Ephesus lies just off the coast. Now about 20 or so miles, maybe about between, from about here to downtown Houston, you have another town called Colossae, and it's not a big city, it's not cosmopolitan, it's not a trade center, it's really kind of a, a small town feel uh, off in uh, middle Turkey. 
And that's where Epaphras is from. But Epaphras had been in Ephesus, probably on business or something like that. He had traveled, uh, made the travel there and was doing business as Paul, some point while Paul was there for three years of ministry in Ephesus. Epaphras heard the gospel and then returned back home to Colossae. And then what is the natural outworking of Epaphras' belief in Christ, his adherence to the gospel, and understanding that his life has been saved by this Jesus who he didn't know before, and has no real identification with Old Testament Judaism, but now as a Gentile is realizing he's being brought into the family of God, grafted in, and made a child of God. Well, of course... He goes home and he tells everybody about it. That's just what happens when a person becomes a believer in Christ. They have news that they need to share. And as they're sharing that news, they find themselves, whether they knew it or not, preaching the gospel. This is just what we expect to be happening all the time in the life of the church. You remember when uh, Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin early on in the book of Acts? And they were brought there because they were being commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore, even though miracles were being done and people were coming to faith in Christ in droves, literally in, in, by the thousands, people in Jerusalem are beginning to believe Christ and follow him. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit and they're carrying this good news of who Jesus is. They're faithful to one another and faithful to the word of God. And as Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin, they're given this command to stop teaching in his name. And what do they say? We cannot help but speak about the things that we've seen and heard. We can't help it. It wasn't even like this kind of obstinate, no, we stand against you. It was, look, guys, if we could, maybe we would, but we can't help it. This thing has happened to us. This force from outside of us has come upon us and just wrecked our souls and so purchased us and kept us and driven such hope into our hearts that we can't stop speaking about it. So do what you want with us, but we're going to go to our grave speaking about Jesus. This is what happened to Epaphras, and this is how the church in Colossae came into existence you had a man on fire for the gospel of Christ, filled with the hope of Christ, just doing what you do when you've been saved by God. I imagine he started with his family. His family begins to believe. Maybe a neighbor, maybe a co-worker, maybe a guy on the street. I don't know. It depends on how crazy Epaphras got. But either way, the whole town heard the gospel. I don't know if that was 100 people or 1,000 people or what, but it began to have this real affectionate place in Paul's heart, even though he had never been there before because Epaphras was this faithful messenger carrying the gospel to his hometown, carrying reports back to Paul. He is this real church planter and, and honestly had an apostolic gift if he wasn't a capital A apostle, a real gifting for establishing the church there and seeing its health grow and, and being faithful to the, the people and faithful to Paul. So you got to understand Epaphras if you're going to understand the church at Colossae. They had never known Paul's presence. They had only heard his word uh, carried back from, uh, uh, from Ephesus through Epaphras. So they didn't have the benefit of an apostle coming through town and, and establishing leaders and all these things. But here they are, 
and they love Jesus and their hearts are on fire and Epaphras is there at the middle of it. But you've got to understand again what was the intent of the letter being written and this helps to introduce the whole purpose of it and as we are preaching through this letter written to the Colossians, it'll help you to understand why the things that are being said are being said to these people at this time. There's a couple different ideas, um, mainly by uh, historians and these and some Bible nerds, uh, about what exactly was going on at Colossae at this time that made Paul from prison in Rome want to write this letter. Here's the two major perspectives. One is that Gnosticism had begun infecting the church. So Gnosticism was an ancient a slant on, uh, on religion that said that uh, some some lesser deity, not, not God as we worship him in his holiness, but some lesser kind of side uh, deity God must have created the world because everything physical is evil. Your bodies, the earth, things that spring up out of the ground, everything that has matter is evil. And so a good God wouldn't have created evil things. So it must have been some kind of other God, some kind of rogue God, and maybe that's who this Jesus character is. There's one perspective. Dangerous, of course. We know that God created all things good, but it was, a, it was our sin that infected it, tainted it, broke it, and brought all this lack and all this wanting into it. But God created good things. Now, the other perspective, and, and it's the one that I think is, is probably more accurate, although Gnosticism was rampant in the first century, so that, that for sure must have been a problem. What, what probably was happening here was that the, the Jewish opposers of the Christian faith had these kinds of, for back of a, letter term, a better term, sh- kind of shamans, these very spiritual people, almost what we would call hyper-spiritual people, where everything was brought into this very mystical kind of realm. And there was a lot of, you'll, you'll see later in Colossians, he addresses angel worship. There was things like this going on that weren't grounded in biblical truth. They were kind of shooting off from biblical truth, and their hearts were carrying them away. And just in an effort at just being very spiritual, they got caught up in things that were demonic, Things that were beginning to infect the church because these, these well-spoken, kind of in an earthly sense, powerful speakers and influential people were telling these believers from within the church, you, you've got to start praying to these angels, or you've got to start worshiping uh, creation in certain ways, and we've got to do these certain kinds of seances and say things in just the right order and all that in order for God to exert his power towards us and for us to receive his blessing. Now, whether you're calling Jesus some kind of second-class evil God who's creating uh, evil things, or you say that Jesus isn't enough and that you've got you've to somehow find your way to God through this mystical journey of worshiping uh, other things, either way, there's a real danger here to the church at Colossae. They're being threatened by false doctrines, false teachers, so now that you understand the dilemma that they're being faced with, let's go back to verse 3 and hear what Paul says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's already clearing up some misconceptions about who Jesus is, right? 
God the Father, who you all claim, and even these people that are leading people astray, claim that there is a God who's good and holy, and and we want to call him Father. We believe he's for us. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord there is not like some person living in a castle, a landowner. It's capital L, God. He's clearing up some Trinitarian misunderstandings here. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints. Now listen, where is this faith in Christ coming from and this love for the saints? Where is this coming from? It's coming from the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, of this hope, you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. In the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth from Epaphras. I would like to zero in, if we could, on this hope laid up for you in heaven. Because if there's a threat against our faith, a threat against the love that we have for one another, a threat against our security in Christ that we believe in what he's accomplished for us, not something that we accomplished so that God would see our good merits, that he would begin to believe in us and trust in us to keep ourselves, to endure to the end, to be able to say the right things and do the right things so that we would be found faithful and worthy of a relationship with him, rather what he accomplishes in and of himself and credits to us. If there's any threat against this, it would be threatened by our hope being diminished. That would be the fruit. That would be the fruit of the threat. That if we begin to waver in our faith or waver in our love for one another or in our security in Christ, what is the thing that we're all living towards? It's the hope that Jesus is alive. The hope that he's not just some establisher of a foreign religion that we see as working well or the best, the best kind of description we can come up with yet as human beings of how the world works and why people are bad and things that could correct that. Jesus is not some foreign guy who started a religion. He is God. And being God, everything he says is originated in his deity, in his perfections, in his holiness. Everything he did was very good. Just as we see in Genesis, when God stepped back, he had created and said it was good. And he created and said it was good. And on the final day, when he was done with creation, he stepped back and he said, it is very good. This is what Jesus does. He creates. He designs. And it's all very good because he is very good. So our hope in him is what? It's very good. Our hope in him is is firm. It's secure. It's not going to fail us. As Romans 5 says, how do we endure trials? We endure knowing that it produces character and character produces hope and endurance. uh, Sorry, produces endurance and endurance produces hope and that hope will not put us to shame because the Holy Spirit's been poured into our hearts. Our hope is secure. It won't fail. 
So he's telling these Colossians who are being assaulted with these false doctrines and these influencers who are, who are uh, uh, bringing themselves into the very heart of the church and corrupting the doctrine of the church and disrupting their faith and their love for one another. He's making a very specific point here in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Laid up for you in heaven. Not, he'd remember, he noticed he doesn't, is there hope in our hearts? Sure, there's hope in our hearts. Do we have hope in each other? Sure, I hope that you'll love me. I hope that you'll accept me, that you'll embrace me and my family. I hope that you'll forgive me. I hope that you would be gracious to me when I fail you. I hope that you'll be faithful to your calling as I seek to be faithful to mine and that together we would see the gospel planted and, and watered and growing up and producing fruit for the glory of God. I hope all those things when I think of all of you. But is my hope laid up in you? Is it established in you? Is it laid up in my own heart or established in myself? Am I trusting in myself? Am I the one who keeps my hope secure? It's laid up in heaven. Laid up in heaven. Where, where a, a Gnostic person would say, oh no, everything's physical and everything's evil. And anything that you find that's hopeful, you have to find in yourself, in your soul. And if some some Jewish mystical uh, person would come to you, some shaman, some, some, some very mysterious kind of powerful guy who's an influencer in the church would come to you and say that uh, your, your hope is in doing the right things and saying the right things and, and, and coming to God with the right words on the right page. That your hope is in those things. Man, if our hope is not laid up in heaven, if it's not secure and founded in Christ, who's at the right hand of God, then our hope is insecure. Our hope is failing. It's faltering. It's wavering. It's not to be trusted in. Just like I don't trust in myself, and I hope you don't either. If your hope was laid up in you, then I hope you wouldn't trust your hope. But instead... It's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now he's pointing our attention here. If we find ourselves in Colossae, receiving this letter from Paul all the way from Rome, and as it's being unrolled or, or, or tucked, untucked from the you know, belt, as we're hearing this, we're wanting to know, what is it about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that we can so completely, categorically trust in? That we don't have to add any of our own efforts, that we don't have to figure anything else out, we don't have to connect any more dots. If we just see Jesus, then he's enough for us. What is it about him? Well, he says, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. You've heard this before. Everything that you need to know, you know because you know the gospel. 
So, so this is a point here where we have to return to gospel truth, and I hope that you won't say, oh, well, I'll check out for a few minutes while those uneducated people, maybe those unchurched people in the room will get filled in on some things they don't understand, because it's the gospel that if our faith and our hope are rooted in, it's the gospel we have to return to every morning, every day, every moment, so that we're not wavering and trusting in things that are untrustworthy. The gospel is a moment-by-moment annunciation by God that we're whole and free and secure in Christ. It's the reason for our hope. So what is it about Jesus through the understanding of the gospel that would cause us to hope so securely in him that no matter what comes against us, no matter what assails us or infects the life of the church, even turns people against one another or turns people away from Christ, what is it that we're hoping in that we know will cause us to be able to endure so that we know we'll have grace and peace from God our Father? Jesus died for sinners. That truth, standing on its own, is still the foundation that we're standing on. Every day, every Sunday, every Monday, every Tuesday, hang on, Wednesday? Wednesdays, bro? Every single day, the Christian life is built on the fact that Jesus died for sinners. Now, there's, there's a whole lot to unpack when we just say the phrase, Jesus died for sinners, isn't there? It's, it looks something like this to unpack that truth. But listen, here's the main point of that that we have to really, some of us wrestle with, some of us be reminded of and washed with this morning so that we can return and, and correct our gaze so that it's fixed on Christ again and not on our own efforts. To remember your place in the story of the gospel, you're the sinner. You're the sinner that Jesus died for. As Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, just a day's journey away from Colossae, we all were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Jesus died for sinners. So we find ourselves in this story where we're the broken ones, we're the unhealthy ones, we're the ones who are far off and need a God to call us from afar and draw us inward into himself and treat us as sons and daughters and love us and kiss us and put a ring on our fingers and a robe on our shoulders and kill the fattened calf like that prodigal son. We're the ones who are far off, and we're the ones who are brought near by the blood of Christ. And if the gospel, if this truth of sinners, us, being saved by Jesus, is what all of our hope is founded in, and that our hope is in Christ, then isn't it good news that after Jesus died for us, he rose from the dead on the third day? Because if not, our hope is laid up in a grave. 
But instead, he was resurrected by the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that's now at work in you. Woo! What? The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. Is it work in us to remind us of the truth? So then Jesus resurrected from the grave in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his authority over sin and death and Satan, squashing it under his foot, even as it was prophesied in Genesis 3, that his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. He did so by raising from the dead. He preached this good news to his disciples. He commissioned them for a mission. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now, because of his ascension, because of his victory over life and death and all that would come against the church, our hope in Christ is laid up in heaven. When he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, he says, remember Jesus. Remember him crucified. Remember him raised. Remember him ascended. Remember that he even now is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you, Hebrews says. Always a faithful high priest who didn't just die once, but, uh, sorry, who didn't have to die over and over again to, to apply his sacrifice to you, but died once for all, so that all would be purified by his blood. Remember who Jesus is, and your hope will be secure. And if your hope in him is secure, tell me, please, brothers and sisters, if the gospel's true and your hope is in the, the very central figure and the accomplisher of the good news of the gospel, the one who's alive at the right hand of God, if your hope is in him, laid up in heaven, secure, untouchable, unable to be assailed or diminished or minimized, if your hope is in him, you tell me what could conquer you. What could hurt you? What could destroy you? This is why Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but after that can do nothing to you. Instead, fear him who can kill the body and cast it into hell. He's not talking about Satan. He's talking about God. Only fear God. Only fear God because God is the only one in all of creation and all that exists who could possibly hurt you and he's the one who is always persistently for you. What could we possibly be afraid of? What could possibly divide us? What could possibly destroy our fellowship, our love for one another? What could taint our hope? Nothing. Nothing. As Paul said to the Romans, what could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Not height or depth or angels or demons, right? Nothing, nothing can separate us from God. And this is where he's directing the attention of these people in Colossae to remember their hope in Christ, to remember the gospel that they believed when Epaphras rolled into town with good news. Remember it, believe it, trust in it, stand on it. It's the foundation. So here's what sets this letter to the Colossians apart from so many other letters. The, the deity and the authority and the power of Christ was being threatened in the perspective of the people. We know that who Jesus is can never truly be threatened in reality, right? 
We know that he is who he is, no matter how we rail against it or whether we believe it or not. But their perspective was being attacked. And so he's writing to the church in Colossae, and this entire letter, like no other letter we have from Paul, is exalting Jesus for us to see exalting, magnifying him. It's like Jesus is there and we could all see him, but all of our heads have been downcast to the earth and our hope has been diminished and put in other things that will always fail us. And he's picking up our chins and saying, wait a second, look at Jesus. Just look at him. Just see him as he is. And your hope will be restored. Your fear will be cast out. Just see Jesus. This is what he does in this letter to Colossians. And I'm not going to spoil the whole series by getting ahead, but it's so hard. There's just stuff on the next page I want to say so bad today. All right? Did, I, did somebody just say go? No, don't do that. But just look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was born first. It means he's preeminent in the household of God. He's the heir of all things. Jesus is large, my friends. Jesus is not a joke. Jesus is not your pal. Jesus is not some homeless Galilean hippie who just wants to help people out. He's not just some social justice advocate who just wants to heal some wounds and encourage some folks. Jesus is God, creator, sustainer. All things find their existence in him. He has all the power, all the authority. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He chooses to love you. He chooses to be for you. He chooses to exert all that he is toward you so that you would be found in him, justified before a holy God. Just look at Jesus. Just behold Jesus. Now listen, I, I know that in our church culture, it can be a little bit difficult to continue speaking about Jesus without people getting a little antsy and, and honestly a little bit bored. We can get a little bit bored. That's great, but what about my marriage? That's great, but what about my kids? That's great, but I just lost my job. Listen, brothers, sisters, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Remember the gospel. See him in the center of the best news ever told by human lips. And you tell me, if you believe the gospel, what about your marriage? Well, Jesus. What about your kids? Jesus. Give them Jesus. Trust in Jesus. You lost your job or you're having a hard time finding one or you're just not making enough money? Look, brothers, sisters, look at Jesus. Look at him. Are you scared? Do we need to be scared? Look what's happening here, even in the last few weeks. 
How unheard of is it that three congregations of people, all independent of each other, one of them's going, man, we're out here in a neighborhood that's not really ours and a building that isn't ours and feeling a little bit like we're out in the desert. Man, Lord, provide something for us. And down the street, another one's going, man, we're struggling and, and we're in an awkward season where, where the leadership dynamic is just, we, we haven't been able to land on something that, that the Lord is really working through uh, in a way that we're satisfied with. And another one's going, man, you know, we've got this heart to serve God and love God and follow God, but we find that God's drawn us into a season where we need some help, we need some, some encouragement and all these things, and that all of them would come together at the same time and be in a room together worshiping Jesus. And all of their gifts are working cohesively together so that they complement and benefit and bless one another. This is an incredible thing. Amen? This is just an incredible thing, a consolidation of what the Lord was doing so that we could be better together to God's glory than we were apart. But you tell me, in a natural sense, and, and listen, this is always one, this is one of my one of my pet peeves about preaching is when a dude gets up and preaches to a podcast instead of the people in the room. I hate that. We're in this room together. This is us. For us, in the natural sense, aren't there so many things that could destroy our church right now? Aren't there so many things that could create factions and divisions and that people and their desires and their, their little pets could be exalted into places and they could supplant Jesus. So we're all looking at what we want instead of looking at Jesus as risen and authoritative over it all. Aren't there so many things? We're Colossian. We're Colossian. And the answer is, look at Jesus. Look at him. If you believe in who he is, then, then, then what question remains that we don't have not just a satisfactory answer for, but an answer that actually demolishes the question, demolishes the uncertainty? We're not trusting in each other. We're trusting in Jesus. We're not trusting in some building bricks and mortar and wood. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? And we can thank God for it and we can gather here and worship in it. But you tell me, are we trusting in a structure built by human hands? We're trusting in the spirit of the living God to meet us in this place. And then we go back to our homes and where's the spirit of God? In our homes and in our workplaces. And as we go, look at Jesus. Now, finally, just because we, we want to continue moving at Paul's pay, place, sorry, Paul's pace. He speaks about Epaphras. He says, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. They're fighting the good fight. fight. Their love remains. They're walking by the Holy Spirit. All these things have attacked them. They've risen up. There's false teachers. There's false doctrines that have threatened the purity of the church, the teaching of the church. But they love each other in the spirit. And I want to just, again, highlight Epaphras, if I can. 
because I think this, um, we, we want to look at Jesus and we want to trust in him only, but we don't want to find ourselves in some awkward way trusting in some person who has special significance or a title or something like that to show us Jesus all the time. Rather, we want to be like Epaphras, don't we? Paul was never in the church. Paul was never even in the town. It was Epaphras. It was, it was a guy they knew. A guy from their town. A guy who had a heart for knowing God, maybe, but didn't know God. Just a businessman. Just a dude. And he brought the gospel. And he fought for its purity. And he continued to, uh, for on their behalf, he continued to fight for their good. So I, I want to say to you this morning that Paul really is not the star of this passage when we're looking for faithful ministers of the gospel. It's Epaphras. It's the guy that most of you, if I'm venturing a guess, most of you had never heard of before you came here today. Just a dude. I mean, a dude with his name in the Bible. <laughs> Lucky. But in terms of you know, global Christianity and church planting efforts and all these things, I mean, this, this would just be one of us. A faithful minister of Christ. You. You. With the Spirit of God inside of you. With the gospel. At your disposal. On the tips of your tongues. On the front of your minds. Looking to Jesus. Seeing Him as sufficient. Seeing Him as all-encompassing. As life itself. Epaphras was just a saved human being. You are all saved human beings. So please, if, if you've been tempted to put yourself, relegate yourself to some position on the bench in Christianity or in the church where, man, there's special people with special anointings who do special things for the name of Christ. And I'm just not one of those people. Listen, you're way off. The church was built on the backs of people whose names we don't know. Many of them slaughtered, slaughtered for games. And we never knew their names. Many of them children. You have a very special place in the mission of God. And I don't know what it looks like for each one of you beyond this. I know that it looks something like being a faithful minister of Christ. A faithful minister of Christ. To carry the gospel into your life wherever you go. And the fruit of it is that people hear the gospel, believe, trust in Christ only, see him as exalted, as magnified, as enough, as life itself. This happens through us. God moves through us. It's how the church at Colossae was planted. It's how this church began. 
It's how each one of us is going to be personally involved in advancing the gospel in the world. It starts at home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your church. Live the life God's called you to, full of the Spirit of Christ. And God will be glorified and Jesus will be magnified. He'll be shown to be enough. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.